welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. And today I am joined by Barry Baz Rice, a protective security practitioner and former Blackwater contractor. Now, Barry, you've had an, a, uh, an interesting, long career in the protective security kind of umbrella. You've done a lot of things, and uh, I'm just going to kind of switch it up and let you kind of give your background, um, kind of where you came from, you know, your time at Blackwater, and then kind of what you're doing now at a very high level. And then we'll dive into kind of your journey all the way back. Um, to the beginning, and then we'll get to kind of where you are today and, and, and what you're doing. So appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you being on here today. Very much, Ron, and um, I appreciate you taking the opportunity to talk to you on your podcast. Well, yeah, looking back on it, quite a history in uh, the security industry, uh, primarily because um, I wasn't too dumb or I wasn't too smart to do anything else, one thing or the other. But uh, I couldn't really see myself doing doing much else. I, I come from New Zealand, uh, somewhat accent. And so back in the day, you know, in the 80s, well, when I was growing up and had reached that point where, where I was going to get a job, um, the military was a natural step for us. Well, the community we were from has a big history with uh, the military. We have quite a famous military history back to the Second World War uh, with the Maori Battalion. Um, I'm part Maori, which is native New Zealand. We have a big cultural sort of spiritual side to us um, until they're drunk. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, so it was kind of a natural progress to go into the military. Uh, it's, it's something that we always pursue. Also, back at that time, um, it was really difficult to leave New Zealand uh, because it's such a nice, loaded place. And uh, really, the military, we also looked at it as a as an inexpensive way of being able to get out of New Zealand. You know, back then, the air travel wasn't as prevalent or affordable as it is now. So it was a free trip, free clothing, free food. You know, so why not? So I joined the military, and sort of that was what started my my uh, career in security, really. It's awesome. So let's roll back to that, you know, that time, 1985, when you joined the New Zealand Defence Force. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, you ended up SAS. Can you explain what that is for listeners who uh, who don't have the same background or this is the first time they're hearing of the New Zealand Defence Force? It's in New Zealand is the highest unit you can get in this. Um, we have a very fierce reputation. And it is what uh, Delta Force in the United States is based after. Um, so Charlie Beckwith, who was the founder of Delta Force, was uh, he was stationed with the 22SES in the UK for a number of years. And uh, back in the late 70s and the early to the US, you said we, at the time, I believe in the US was really only Green Berets and perhaps um, the forerunners to the Navy SEALs, you know, the ODTs or whatever. So he, he got permission and he formed Delta Force. And um, exactly like the very first mission of uh, the DSAS in World War II, the first mission was a failure. Um, so, you know, we kind of both had that sort of similarity. But, you know, from failure, as you learn, um, it's now grown to be, no doubt, of course, one of the most respected units, special forces units in the world. So it has the SAS, which has kind of always been held up very high, very high, in fact, perhaps premier tier one special forces unit amongst them. Um, now in New Zealand, we, 
we pretty much that way. We don't have all the gear and the money and the equipment because we're just a small country, but we do kind of overperform. We do do very well. Um, so to get into that unit, it's always hard as it should be. Uh, yeah, it's it's something to be very very proud of and something to be proud of in high esteem. Considering you know back then we only had a population of three million people. So uh, I think my selection back in '87 when I when I did it was out of the hundred people that tried, there was only three of us that passed. Man, that's incredible. Um, and you spent about ten years with the New Zealand Defence Force, and then from that you migrated from you know. Special Forces Commando to films and movie and uh, a little bit of a trajectory change. What kind of spawned that? How did you end up in that world? Um, how did you end up to go down that path? Yeah. So, you know, when you say yes, say yes, it opens doors. You know, you don't really need to submit a CV or a resume for anything like that. You say, I was the SAS, you know, you, you generally get the job straight away. But also, like everything in the, in the military, it's about who you know first. So, you know a buddy, you know a buddy, who knows a buddy, he's got a job, there's something happening, that's the way it always works. So a friend of mine, who was in the unit with me, he uh, was a stuntman on Lord of the Rings, uh, which was being filmed in New Zealand back at the time. And um, they were needing more people. I got hired as a stuntman on Lord of the Rings. And also, we did the you know, the military advising when there was marching scenes, when there was kind of like tactics to be used uh, in the movie. So... Uh, Myself and my ex-unit buddy did that. And then I did a few other sort of TV shows, commercials, and, and whatever else. But my main sort of side came when I was living in Jordan, in the Middle East, actually. And uh, I got to meet Mark Bowl and, and Catherine Bigelow. And they were trying to look for locations to uh, to shoot this little movie that they had called um, The Hurt Locker. And again, it was through... A, a, former Blackwater who knew them, encouraged them to come to Jordan to, to find these locations. So I met Mark and Catherine that way, and um, we ended up filming The Hurt Locker, which became a huge success. Um, I did the military advising, and um, also because of my brown complexion, I got I got killed quite a lot as an insurgent. <laughs> and so <laughs> later, we did Zero Dark 30, um, again in Jordan, with Mark and, and Catherine. Uh, and, that in Jordan and India, and then I've done uh, other other movies and TV shows again with Mark. Um, the most recently was in Colombia for nine months. I did a TV show called Echo Three, which was which was fantastic. It's a really interesting uh, sort of I wouldn't say career change, but it's a really interesting industry for someone to get into. Come from the military, it's 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 great fun. Um, the work is somewhat easier. But your knowledge comes out, and it's really good to see your knowledge coming out and being used and, and put in front of the screen because, you know, movie industry has changed a lot from the, from the John Wayne days of shoot them up, grab your chest, spin around, fall on the ground dead. I mean, now people are so aware with the capabilities of technology, weapons, tactics, uh, for video games, and whatever else, that you, you have to be as authentic and or, or as real as possible. So... If you don't know what you're doing, it becomes apparent. When people are watching it, that's what it's all about because it's all about, you know, captivating the audience to keep watching. So, yeah, it's, it's got to be as close to real as possible. You know, it's interesting, and, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit more here. Um, and maybe to preface it, there was a movie, um, I forget by the title, but I still remember the scene where they're moving through a house at night, and uh, 
each different frame, there's a suppressor on the handgun. Next frame, there's not. Next frame, there is. Next frame, there's not. And I just remember sitting there going, who did the advising on this thing? Um, and, and quite honestly, to your point, um, you can tell when, when you know, a, a film or a project has really good advising because it shows in the final product. And then you can see where maybe there wasn't advising or maybe they picked the wrong advisor and, and or got overruled. Um, and, and it just seems like that make it stick out. So for you, what is that conversation like when, when you start on a project and you meet with the, maybe the producers or the director or individuals on the team, and you're kind of explaining, this is how things need to look. This is how they go. Is, is it a, it's much of a journey through the process or, or are you there day to day? How does it look for, for you? It's a big aspect of what we do as well. I mean, there is a continuity person on set. They're busy basically with, with other things, military type of stuff. So I'm always keeping an eye out for that. You know, you held it like this in the last scene. You, you can't go changing. Well, this is what you were taught. You can't go changing. Um, from the very beginning, I, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. Worked in the industry with people I've worked with over the years. So that I know them, they know me. I explain my job in such a way that I'm the expert in this particular part of what you've hired me to do. Okay, so the director generally gets on board with me and takes my advice, okay, because they want it to look good as well. Things that you want to try and look out for if you're, if you're looking, that I always look for is that, you know, weapons are held correctly, the tactics are correctly. If you touch with a right hand, you you know continue, you never take the hand off the uh, trigger guard. Fingers always on, on the outside. Because I'm watching a TV show, I've, re- I've immediately lost interest. I, I can't watch it anymore. And I did the same thing. I go, well, who the hell was the uh, military advisor on this? So then we have to step in as where practical. But you also have to know when you have to step back a bit because it's money. And is it really worth making the point for something that will only be seen for maybe a split second? So you kind of you have to compromise. If you get too bogged down in it, they'll just get rid of you and get somebody else in who will do everything that they say. And I had this on, on one movie. Um, they brought in someone from the, um, I think he was the logistics. He issued out uniforms and they brought him out as a military advisor. So these guys were dressed as um, uh, mercenaries or they were, they were not contractors, they were mercenaries, but they were dressed all wrong. And I came out and, and I was going, well, why has he got a, a medical pouch by his cheek uh, that he holds the weapon onto and lifts it up into? You know, that, that's not right. I mean, everything was uh, so... You have to make sure everything looks correct, and I get involved in that as well. The the costume department will ask me to come in and say, "Does this look right? Does that look right?" Where if, if somebody's somebody's playing, they're playing say special forces, if someone's playing uh, an insurgent, or someone's playing just uh, somebody who's picked up a gun and had absolutely no training. So you have to make whoever's acting those parts look that part. If you have someone who's acting as a, a COSAS or Delta. And he's got the weapon handling skills of uh, someone from the Salvation Army. Uh, it's going to be noticeable, you know, so you have to make sure you get that correct as well. You know, so that's interesting. Sometimes you've got some of the, you know, kind of lead characters, actors that um, maybe have some familiarity, maybe don't have any familiarity with kind of military procedures or weapons handling or kind of those types of, of, uh, of areas of work. Um, obviously. Yourself, other military guys, law enforcement guys, uh, security contractors, we all spend a lot of time 
in a lot of years, either at the range or in the field, gaining experience. How do you compress that to show on screen and convey that through um, with an actor that's maybe very new to this kind of area of work, maybe hasn't touched a firearm before, uh, let alone, you know, acted as a tier one operator or somebody else on screen? How do you kind of, uh, with the compressed kind of training schedule that most of these movies have, how do you kind of get from point A to point Z where it's believable on screen? Well, what I do is I, I convince them that I need time with these guys. Give me five days, you know, and I'll take them away. And I won't run an extensive boot camp as such, but I'll run some very extensive training. Uh, with, with Zero Dark 30 and the Herdlock, we were very lucky to be filming in Jordan. So we used the Casada, um Training Center, which is fantastic. Uh, sitting around there, we threw grenades, you know, with all the actors. Um, and we got them... So used to the weapons, they they slept with you know, the weapons, they ate rations, um, they stayed in their dirty uniform. Because here's another thing too, I mean, if you're acting as a someone who's about on, been out on a patrol for six weeks and all your gear is shiny and smells new, you know, it's it's a new slept in their gear. And we treat, I treated them, well, my, my, again, my friend from New Zealand, we do it together, uh, we treated them like they're on a basic course. Without, you can't really run them into the ground too bad because at the end of the day, they are actors. However, you do you do take them out of their comfort zone. The other advantage is that before each scene, I'll run through it with them. And I'll always be there on set and we'll be we'll be practicing some drills. Um, that goes not just for weapons. If there's a hand-to-hand combat technique that has to be used, there's a difference between, you know, what we're taught in the um, Special Forces world, hand-to-hand combat, and, say, a street fighting. Our tactics is to... You know, not not muck around. You know, we go, we have certain areas that we go for because we know that they're effective, and we can't afford to uh, to stand there and duke it out with somebody because he may be a, maybe Mike Tyson, for example. You know, so you're gonna lose that one unless you use some dead tricks. You know, so yeah, the training is is always good, and you just got to keep going and keep going. And uh, the other thing too with that is they if they screw it up, they'll just reshoot it. And you'll get in there and you'll fix them up again. See, we on the ground, as you probably well know, you can only you only get to get it. You know, you got to get it right every time. On a movie, you know, they can cut. We'll do that again, and then you go and you make adjustments. So you, you do have that uh, benefit. Man, that, that's right. That's fascinating. Um, while you've been on set, has there been any kind of interesting challenges that you've ran into that you've had to kind of fix on the fly or? Uh, difficult personalities that you've had to work through um, without naming some names, but just some experiences that you find were unique over the years that you've been doing that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, some of these actors are just like pre Madonnas. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, you've got to bring them back down to the ground level on occasions, you know, male and female. So, uh, we did this one fight scene where this woman, uh, actress, whatever they, you want to call them nowadays, or whatever, she must have weighed like about, you know, 50 kg soaking wet. And she was going to beat up somebody my size, you know. And I said, "Well, no, it can't be done." You know, <laughs> you, she can punch me right in the head as hard as she wants. So all she's going to do is get a sore hand, you know. So you know, and she was like, "Yeah, I can do it. I can do it." And I was like, "Well, no, you can't." But okay, if that's what they want, we'll do it. But we've got to make it look more realistic. Okay, so if you were to take me out, or if I were to take me out, this is how I would do it. It wouldn't be any of these punches or anything like that. It would be the vulnerable areas, and you. Using every duty trick in the book that you can to, to get me. 
uh, it won't even be your hand. You'll be, you know, like a whatever. So, you know, you, you got to deal with those who have a little bit of a fantasy about their abilities and, and what, what is reality. Um, also, you know, some of them get all, you know, hot and sweaty and they throw their gear off and down on the ground and then I'll stand there and I'll say, ah, uh-uh, ah, pick up. And then down we'll all be doing push-ups. I always make it, if you screw up, we're the ones who pay the price. So that way nobody screws up. And that brings a very cohesive team straight away. And generally by very quickly into the, uh, the shoot of the movie or TV show, we have a very good team. So to that point, how much freedom or how much change goes into maybe a script when they give you something? Is it all kind of written out of how they want these fight scenes to go or these uh, combat scenes to go and then they come to you or do you build it with them or do you have kind of a blank slate sometimes and you're building it with the, the team? Yeah, so there's the script. And you get a start point and a finish point, which, which, which uh, for example, in uh, in Colombia, we were filming a big battle scene uh, in this um, cocaine producing factory. So we had a, this is where they're going to go from here and they want to get to there. Um, so you get with the actors who are involved in it, and then you'll get with the stunt people who are involved in it. And, you know, this if you have a top-notch stunt, stunt tech, any a, a bad actor look good, you know, and that's what the, that's their job. And we had a very good stunt team in, in Colombia, and those boys really made, you know, they took some hard hits, you know, for realism. And they're all a fight scene, or we would step through a battle scene, and then we'd get the director to come along and have a look to see if that's what he wants, and he was saying, I want that. And one of the parts of it was... Uh, Someone ducked down behind a uh, 40-foot shipping container, you know, and took cover. And I said, no, you can't do that because these things aren't bulletproof. And he goes, oh, really? I didn't realize that. I thought they were. And say, no, no, they're not. It's, they're about as bulletproof as a car door that you see everybody hold, you know, hiding behind. So we'll block through it. We'll, we'll do it. Um, it's kind of in everybody's head and everybody knows what they're doing. And then... Uh, We'll, we'll shoot it in, in bits and pieces, or we'll shoot the whole thing in, at once. It's kind of a complicated, and it'll be shot in bits and pieces, and then put together in the editing room. If it's everyone's got it and knows exactly what needs to happen, you see the whole thing in one in one uh, shoot. And um, so you know, it's it's a it's an idea, and it's a blank slate as to how you want to do it, and then you just find it down. Everybody agrees on it, and then we film it. You will on occasions, however, find it. No, I want it this way. You know, from a director. And you'll go, well, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, you'll walk away and, you know, punch something. And then you'll come back and you, you when they film it, you'll shake your head and go, oh, what am I doing here? And then, you know, you move on to the next scene. Oh, that's interesting, having to work through some of that, uh, the complexities and uh, kind of the hard-headedness of, of some individuals. Um, you know, building on that, you know, you mentioned uh, covering concealment with the, the shipping containers and, and that's a funny conversation to think about um, because for most of us, things like cover concealment, bounding cover, you know, communication, those are just things that we use and utilize for most of us on a daily basis to get home. Um, what is it like when you have to have to explain these concepts again to somebody who's building a movie and say, hey, look, um, again, for either continuity or realism? the real world doesn't work this way. It may work in, in your fantasy script. How do you have that conversation and uh, without completely burning the bridge? Yeah, there's diplomacy, which is something that we're not really that good at. Um, then have to learn sort of, but you do learn it. Um, and it's give and take. And then I'm very willing to say, yeah, okay, what you're saying fits into what I'm thinking. 
and and messing them together without standing there and saying, "Now nah, that sucks." You know, it make your life very difficult on a film set because you know, like we have a job to do, but so do they, and they have a deadline. And at the end of the day, we aren't the top dogs. We're we're just there to advise, and that's what it is: advise. You know, if they want to do it, you've at least advised them on this is what you think should happen or how it's up to them to take it or not. And you really have to learn quickly that you're sort of you're going to run into that and just say, okay, well, that's fine, yeah, and we'll move on. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Some battles you're going to win, some battles you're going to lose, some you got to choose if they're worth fighting. Um, and like you said, just kind of move on uh, to the next project. Um, you know, uh, life doesn't stand still, certainly. And with that, you know, we're talking about movies and film, which are built off of, for the most part, either partially real life events, stories that are built off of something that's based on a true story. Um, while you were doing these advising roles, were you also still security contracting kind of in parallel or was there a break between that world? Mostly doing it in parallel. So I'd come on and I'd organize or I'd facilitate the uh, set security or close protection of the of the people who like to produce some of the actors who security if they hadn't provided it themselves. Um, I would also be doing security, like for, again, Columbia, I was providing security for the main actress and her family, because she brought her family. Um, and because you know, if I wasn't with the family, let's say in Bogota, then I'd be on set whenever there was a, uh, a scene to be shot that required guns and tactics. And, and given that it was a jungle setting, um, it's one thing about us in the SAS, our main theater of operation was jungle. So I'm very, very comfortable in the jungle and a lot of people, not so much. Um, so I knew jungle tactics and all that. So I'd look after the kids and whatever and the nanny when I was on set. And then I'd be there doing the jungle stuff. And when there was, say, dialogue or that didn't require guns or anything like that, I'd be racing back up to Bogota or Medellin or wherever the hell we were. And um, so, yeah, I wear a couple of caps, certainly when I'm on set. And that's good because um, another thing about film set, it's, it's very tedious. It's 12 hours at least, a 12-hour day. So I, I'm lucky. I can break away. I can do my other things and uh, yeah, not have to stand here for 12 hours. Man, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, and, and you're right. Uh, behind the scenes is very different. And like you said, when you're piecing together you know, scene by scene or, or bit by bit, as opposed to what we see as a finished product. Um, and I guess one last question in that role, um, you know, for you, where is kind of the favorite place that you've done locations? Because as I understand, a lot of people are doing them in, in studio now and using, you know, the technology, the green screen. So um, where are some of your favorite places that you've been able to go kind of before that was prevalent? I did one movie called um, White House Down, and the whole thing was shot inside, inside of the uh, sound screen. You know, everything was made inside. There was this, there was an outside show. Um, New Zealand was fantastic uh, for Lord of the Rings. I mean, we really saw some fantastic locations. I love the Middle East. But I think my favorite my favorite location is uh, Colombia. I mean, it's uh, it's got everything. You know, I love jungle, and it's, it's got everything there, and I, I really like it. For Columbia and the jungle, you spent a lot of time training in that environment. What is it like to go back into it? Does it bring back memories of your time with SAS? Does it bring back kind of you to a different time or era in your career? What is it about the jungle that, that is such familiarity for you? 
you know, it's like falling off a log or riding a bike, as they say. Back in the unit, I was a tracking instructor as well, so I, could, I was tracking. And it was what we do is a fun thing. It would be called a tuning in. So we'd sit sit down and they just do nothing for, say, half an hour. And then you'd, you'd hear everything. You'd absorb the jungle. And then you, you'd tune in. And that's what it's like. That's what it felt like getting back into it. I could hear the animals. I could I'd look at the ground. I'd read the sign. I'd see where people were. You're not bashing through it. You're not fighting it. You're working with it. You know, which which goes and I'll just say one thing is like when they you ever see this ever see on a, a scene where a group of people are walking through the junkies, you would never do that. Not only AK military wise you're leaving sign, but B, you're now making punchy sticks for the person behind you to stab themselves with you know, you, you move through the jungle, you don't fight it. But as soon as you fight it or, you know, you cut it, you've just made something that's gonna uh, or injure the person behind you. If you've been in that environment so often, it's it's just nice to get back in there, and I had no problems. I really enjoyed it. You have obviously a deep connection with the jungle environment, trained there, operated in that environment, very familiar. Like you said, for you, it's like riding a bike or falling off a log. You're you're right back into that. Um, you wrote a book recently where you talked about your experience in a very different yeah. environment, something far away from kind of. The jungle environment that we talked about just now in Colombia, and uh, the book is titled "We Were Blackwater," and life and death and madness in the killing fields of Iraq. And uh, you've detailed your experience as a private security contractor in that world at that time. Um, and uh, I'd love to dig into kind of that experience working high threat protection at a very volatile time uh, during um, the Iraqi invasion and uh the follow-on afterwards so if you are are ready let's uh let's start at the beginning of your private you know security contracting journey in iraq in your book you you talk about it a little bit here um how you came into country with 30 other individuals roughly and uh actually were hired by a different u.s security company called uh custer battles which made me chuckle as i read it and then a couple lines down I chuckled again because you were laughing about the same reason I was laughing when I read it about the connection to the custard. Um, but it was just the, the co-founder's name smashed together. Um, let's start there. You obviously didn't start with Blackwater. You came in a country with a different company. What was that experience like? How did you end up either getting contacted or um, finding this security company? What was the draw to this work uh, at the very beginning? Um, so I was working, uh, I was on a training contract in the Philippines at the time, and then um, the contracting world in Iraq opened up to hiring contractors, um, which was perfect, you know, really was. I mean, um, I'd got out of the military, and I'd been quite successful doing the, the security contracts that I had found, but you you, ne- you have never really teached yourself, and um you know, New Zealand back in the, at those times when I was in the military was a peacetime army. You know, we hadn't done anything really since sort of Vietnam of any significance. You want to test yourself. I mean, that's basically what every soldier, policeman, or whatever else wants to do. Beforehand, you know, the circuit, of, as it was called, was mainly working in Africa during the 70s and the 80s and that with 2-2 SAS, Rhodesia, you know, and being from New Zealand, far away to, to come into anyone's mind to, to hire us. So, yeah, I, I 
heard about custom battles through a friend uh, that I applied, and I, like I said before, I said SAS and immediately got a response and um, organised flying over to Jordan. You know, I was very, very excited about that because it was now I'd ask for to, you know, I'd better put my war faith on and get to it. And um, you're right, it wasn't a jungle situation. It was it was a new environment for me. But that doesn't really matter. I mean, you, you learn to adapt very, very quickly. It's, it's all part of what we're trained to do. We staged in Amman, Jordan, um, at the Bristol Hotel there. Uh, there was about 30 other, um, I would like to say, but sort of like moderate speed with a, you know, one one wheel down in the undercarriage, so it wasn't wasn't low drag uh, individuals, <laughs> and I, I soon found that I was the the only non-American there, which again didn't bother me, didn't bother me at all. But I knew I wouldn't be able to hide my accent uh, too long before people started wondering, you know, where I was from. And I, I was very lucky. I, I met a really good bunch of guys, uh, three other guys, almost straight away, and we connected. You know, we we gelled very fast. One of my other surprises, well, you know, I didn't really get one of my first surprises was I, I, I just assumed that the military background, tier one, SWAT, you know, sort of hostage rescue, police, whatever. And it wasn't so much. It was just whoever got, you know, must have been the first 30 CVs they got in. So they flew them to Jordan and stage. So again, you know, you know it, you get on with it, and uh, you work out where your place is. Um, I work out those who I believe, you know, I could see, I think, have the skills. Those who like to talk about skills but don't necessarily have them. Those who I think uh, should be here and those who I think shouldn't be here. And again, you just observe. And uh, sooner or later, you know, these things start to come to the surface and uh, a few. And, you know, it's it's sort of what happens from there. We flew into... Um, into Baghdad from uh, Jordan, as I, as I write in the book, you know, one of the, when we landed and were being processed, there was a whole commotion going on at the back of the queue, and there was this one guy who was he decided he wanted off, he wanted back on the plane and back to Jordan, you know, and he was one of the guys who was talking quite a bit, and that's how they normally sort of uh, identify themselves, you know. But at the same time, I have to say good on him. I would sooner he pull the pin and leave then uh, rather than, uh, say, on a job or on a run, not wanting to be there. Therefore, he's no longer of use to anybody and he's put everybody else at risk. That's what started to sort those who could do the job to those who had the realisation that we were finally there. And, um, you know, that's another thing, military or police force. You know, you're not there until you're there. And uh, when we landed in Baghdad, you know, we were there. Yeah, and you guys were there at a at a very... I mean, there were kind of waves throughout the invasion and the aftermath, but uh, it was it was still, I mean, an incredibly active time. As you, you notate, when you got there, a lot of the talkers, as you detail in your book, had bought a bunch of, you know, swagged out gear, a bunch of the, the stuff that you see in movies and film and what you would assume uh, you'd be operating with in real life. And, and you showed up uh, with very little. And... Uh, and then you realized, um, I'll let you talk about kind of the initial weapon situation and maybe kind of a little bit of the surprise that maybe not just yourself, but probably those guys who thought they were going to be throwing on a lot of their accessories onto the gear, um, what they were surprised with when you got in country. Definitely. I mean, I, I turned up with one one bag, you know, a little bit of PT kit, uh, you know, some cargo pants, some boots, you know, stuff that was old. You know, I think the newest thing I had was the new cap I'd bought at the duty-free in Dubai when I came through. 
for me, not being American, I was like with the very first time I went to uh, Bass Pro Shop in, in Miami, I was like, oh my God, you know, and I have to say there was probably a bit of jealousy because we we don't see anything like that in our part of the world at all. However, I had to have a chuckle with our, our gear. The first thing we were given were these um, the old reporter vests, you know, when you see the old 19, I don't know, 80s movies, you know, the, the reporter vests with the pockets, they put all their rolls of film and all that sort of stuff in them. Yeah, we were given these things and it uh, looks like it was one size fits all, you know, triple XL. And uh, these things just hung on us like aprons. And then we were given the weapons and uh, they were they were like perhaps AK-47s from, I don't know, maybe the late 60s, early 70s that had been stuck in a desert cave somewhere that had seen better days for sure. You know, I wasn't the only one who came pretty well unprepared equipment-wise, but it was good to see that they weren't getting in forged and, and tricked out sort of weapons that they thought they would be getting. Absolutely. So you, you go through with this group, um, you identify some problems uh, during some movements, you fix some of those problems, and I'll leave those in the book for, for the readers to enjoy. Um, but you kind of realized, um, you know, maybe for $200 a day, maybe there's a little bit more out there. Uh, some of the other American guys are talking about this group called Blackwater. You're uh, a guy from New Zealand. Not 100% sure if you're going to be able to get on, you know, that kind of contract. There had been some limitations. So how did this all come about, the conversation? How did you decide, hey, you know what, I got to get out of this kind of situation and on to another one, knowing that you still wanted to be in country doing this type of work, um, but maybe this wasn't the best avenue for somebody with your skill and experience and professionalism. The commitment to us, equipment-wise, wasn't what I was expecting. Now, I'm very grateful to Custer Battles for getting me in country and paying me $200 a day because at that time, $200 US a day was, was a lot of money. Uh, however, if I'm going to you know, risk my life and get killed for it, I want to at least know that uh, you know I will be supported um, it didn't take long. It, took, it was very quickly, in fact, where I was just, uh, this was crazy. We were running one vehicle, so I was getting moves. There were several guys um, yeah, who were talking, and one guy in particular um, was a former Navy SEAL himself, uh, way back in the day. And uh, my only knowledge of Blackwater was that they were doing the State Department contract with uh, Paul Bremer and then providing his security. And that was Americans only, American security, uh, vetting, clean uh, clearances. You know, something that was out, you know, I would never be able to get on. So I went and saw this individual in his room and, uh, you know, laid down my cases and said, you know, we can make some money with the rebuilding. We don't have to have solely Americans. There are plenty of guys over here with great skills. Um, we can use them and then we can split off and make money uh, that way. Um, you know, Eric Prince is a very smart guy. I admire him quite a lot, actually, for the vision that he had. And he said, yeah. You know, why not? But uh, until we see that you're going to be viable, you're on your own. So I firmly believe in my skills and my ability to lead people. Uh, I firmly believe in that I, I know what I'm doing. And he agreed and he said, yeah, um, yeah, but I'd like to have you on board. And so I thought, okay, well, while I'm at it, I'm going to ask one more thing. And I said, you know, I want to be the team leader. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a bit bold, but you know, if you don't, you don't try, you don't know. Long at all to uh, think about, and he says, "Yeah, I, I can see the logic in that. I think that's a good idea." So we we all moved off. I kept that to myself. He kept that to himself. Um, 
and then we moved across to Karata, and then we had a meeting. We all got together, so around some very warm Amstel beers that our local driver had got us, and we uh, we sealed the deal with uh, a warm beer. That's how Blackwater Commercial was uh, born in uh, in Iraq in 2003. Um, you know, again, you end up as a team lead now in this this new Blackwater Commercial side, and uh, you know, like I said, uh, you you were pretty unfazed by you know the lack of fallback lack of insurance at the beginning really just kind of starting up shop out there and uh you detail later you know here you are and and you're struggling for the same things that everybody else is which is intelligence maps weapons again um what were some of your struggles struggles out of the gate that you then encountered um kind of in this new role as a team lead new company new umbrella for a well-established company, um, different sector, you know, um, what were some of the, the challenges right out the gates? So when I, once I joined, I thought, yeah, Blackwater, right? You know, they've got all the gear, looking at the, uh, the state guys and belong before, before we get all the gear too. But no, we had to find it ourselves and that, that set up in, in Iraq at the time. You couldn't get anything done unless you had a local Iraqi fixer. Um, and those guys were still nice. I mean, fantastic people. Uh, through our fixer, um, that he arranged a a taxi full of guns to come to us in the uh, darkened car park of the Alhambra Hotel, and uh, and some gaggling was done in order to buy what we could with the limited money that we had. Um, you know, the, the shiny M4s and, and the support and the little bird helicopters that were just out of our reach until we had established ourselves. Um, and they were still stuck with the State Department anyway. Again, straight out of the gates, and uh, we had no armour. We had no um, armoured vehicles. But then again, you know, a lot of other companies didn't either. And at that stage, we we knew we were going to get them eventually. We just had to survive long enough to get to, get to that point where we did get them. Um, you know, there was there was things that we wanted to buy that we just couldn't afford, and there were things that we needed that we we just couldn't get. I was lucky, you know, and I think most of the guys, you know, the Americans in particular, with guys of their friends in different companies, and myself with uh, New Zealanders and uh, and some of the other guys in different companies, we would call amongst each other just to gather intelligence ourselves, and that's how I think everybody did it at the start. No one, no no one in the military or the state department was going to give us maps. You know, we. I didn't. We didn't want local driving us. Locals driving us. I mean, the situation was we didn't know their background or the situation that they were under. And the only way to learn the routes of anywhere new is to get out there and, and do them yourselves. And, and you get lost. You take the wrong turns, and then you you learn from that, and that sinks in a, a lot quicker. So we did a lot of that, and not just in Baghdad. We did a lot, luckily enough to do it all around most of Iraq. Uh, managed to travel. Quite extensively, and I got to know the roads very well. Now you uh, you detailed kind of back to uh, you know uh, Custer battles real quick. You guys were housed in the green zone once you joined on with Blackwater. You guys relocated to the red zone. Um, explain that difference for you guys mentally. Um, you know, being in those those kind of two different categories. Um, and you detailed you know it was either mortar attack or or something back when you were at Custer Battles and you guys ended up at the roof, but it, kind of living and breathing in the red zone it detail the difference, kind of the, the, the awareness state that you guys had to maintain. The difference between, you know, inside and outside those you know, was kind of like 
the difference between night and day. You know, you could semi-relax. I mean, we, 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 you never fully relax, though, but you could semi-relax. And I think also for those inside the IG, it became a little bit too complacent, thinking that it was, you know, impregnable, which proved not to be the point. Um, I actually enjoyed being out in the red zone. It showed that we were somewhat self-sufficient, and we were. I mean, and again, this is this is something that I've always done, and I, I did back then. I, we trained my guys. I trained everybody that was ever with me, like firemen. And like firemen, I I say we knew exactly where all our gear was, and we could get it on in split second. And we we had all our drills, uh, immediate action drills, deliberate action drills, attack drills squared away, and then we could relax. But we always stayed within arms reach of uh, gear or weapons or very close to it anyway yeah, and we could relax we could we could have a beer in the room and all that but we were always always on guard we had drills in case someone attacked the hotels even though the hotel complexes themselves were were warred in um we had no control over who was going in and out of them unlike in in, in the iz and, uh, and then we had when we got our team house in the iz itself again you know, we had our house, and that was warden within the walls. However, you still couldn't control who was going to be coming in and out of the IZ as much as the US military tried. It was so, it was so big. Um, you know, we later on, you know, and a lot of people, for many reasons, but one of the more so was that they think, you know, well, we're in the IZ, you're rolling pretty hard. You know, you're still standing too. You still got your weapons. And, you know, and my answer was, you know, well, you know, go with yourself, you know, because just because we're behind this concrete, you don't know who's inside. And that point was proven when, uh, you know, the insurgents managed to put two bombs inside, um, two of the bars, and one of the hearts you might that they, that they you, you, you couldn't relax as such. I mean, you could to a degree once you're in your house, but when you're out, you can just drive on the roads inside anywhere. You just had to be on your guard. You could never let your guard fully down. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, semi-relaxed is a perfect way to put it. Um, and being fully aware of kind of the, the country you're in, the state of affairs, and what you're there to do. And the fact that there were a lot of people unchecked um, in those areas. Um, absolutely. Um, explain the migration going from Custer Battles over to Blackwater uh, Commercial the was there a change in personnel and kind of the types of people you were now working with um was there a, a change in confidence level um as you were going out on movements and and uh and working what was the kind of caliber of personnel you were working alongside at that point the caliber of the people from Custom battles there was one individual he was top notch uh, and i got on really well um not to take anything away from them, they they did have at least one good guy that I dealt with. In Blackwater Commercial and Blackwater itself, however, there were a lot of good guys um, at that um, top level, at the administration level. We had, you know, most of them were former uh, six guys. Most of them, you know, old frogmen who had seen it, you know, been there, done that, had these guys and approachable guys. We also had some of the younger seals, um, completely different from the older seals. You know, more Beach boy shirts, flip flops to a degree, suntans, and we had a mix of uh, law enforcement guys, but you know, really solid, mature people. Um, uh, we had a few jackasses, you know, we had a few, um, you know, like every unit does. 
the caliber of those guys gave me and and the guys that we come over from Castle Battles with a level of confidence uh, that these guys knew what they were doing, so therefore we were we were going to be okay. And then when the equipment started coming in, then the they were putting the money into us now, and uh, we we appreciated that too. So that gave us a level of confidence that uh, we were doing a good enough job that they were that they could see. I remember reading about uh, the Delta Force guy over at at Custer Battles, and uh, you guys sat down over a beer. You felt pretty confident after sitting down with him um, about some changes, and it just it it seems like those changes never really uh, formulated. Sounds like he had a, a tough job on his hand, kind of. Uh, uh, managing this this uh, group of guys that he was uh, handed, and and I love these these call signs, you know, and everybody gives themselves a call sign as as you detail in your book, and you keep talking about these uh, these other guys from Custer Battles that went on with you, um, and you highlight them: G Man, Two Trays, Yard Dog, and I won't spoil the background of their of their call signs here. I'll let the readers do the reading, um, but that group that went over with you to Blackwater. Um, you know, explain the bond that you had developed with these guys and your motivation to continue working with them throughout your time in, in Iraq. Yeah, I was lucky enough, you know, two trades, yard dog, G-man, with the, with the three guys that I met in Amman Jordan. The bond that we developed, I mean, it's, it's like any, any bond I think people will develop in a conflict or in a stressful situation. We became very, very close and uh, we got on really well and I, I trained the guys plus myself very hard. We roomed together. We did everything together. We formed a very, very tight bond. So we, we became sort of second nature as to we knew how each other was going to operate. And again, as me as the team leader, um, I didn't do anything that I didn't ask them to do anything that I wouldn't do. I didn't do first. You know, they could see that I was that I was competent. And that even gets to a point where when I went home on leave, I missed them from the time the plane left the ground. And I wanted to get back. Even though I, I really enjoyed my time off, I couldn't wait for it to be over so I could get back. Because you always had a nagging feeling that something was going to happen. Or something if something was to happen, I wasn't going to be there when it did happen with them. And um, again, I think everybody who's been in a combat situation or a stressful situation goes through that. And, you know, it's good to be back. It's like, this is where I belong. Absolutely. Um, and that's a common... Uh... It's a common strain amongst guys who either serve overseas or are in the military law enforcement protection uh, arenas um, that immediately wanted to go back out, getting home, you know, no matter how bad the day was or how bad the deployment was, going back and getting in that cycle of just return, return, return. Um how was it different? You, you mentioned you you served in kind of more of a peacetime role with SAS, but um, and you talk about wanting wanting to challenge yourself, and this was pretty much the ultimate challenge to go work high threat protection in an active war zone. Um, how did you feel in terms of preparation and readiness once you got there? Um, did you feel that your previous experience? in the military uh, had set you up for success in this role, even though it was different. You you had a different role now as a contractor protecting people and uh, different from what the, as you described, kind of the big army, their role was. Um, kind of, kind of detail that for our listeners 
how you felt uh, going in as, as opposed to how you left? Yeah. Um, I didn't have any doubts. I didn't feel I was out of my depth. I didn't feel like I didn't want to be here. I didn't feel any of that. I, I was quite exhilarated that I, this is where I want to be. Um, a little bit of finally I'm here, but you keep those kind of emotions under control and uh, you, you get on with it. And there were quite a lot of situations. Really, you're doing a military job. You're just wearing civilian clothes. I'd also done many years, once I'd got out, uh, or several years protection for different um, dignitaries, uh, royal families, and other situations. So um, it, it was the best kind of training I think I could have had, and I'm very grateful for it um, because it doesn't really matter what environment you know, you're dropped into. You just quickly learn to adapt to it. And I think the special forces training is perhaps the best at, you know, giving you the ability to adapt pretty smartly to where you are and just get on with the job. You know, you keep bringing up adaptation, and I think it's an important role, especially when you're going into something to this degree, um, working protective services, you know, either in New Zealand or... Um, the U.S. I mean, it's it's a very different world from a high threat protection detail. Again, in a in a combat environment, um, what were some of the biggest adaptations? Again, you're in a country that is in obvious turmoil, um, and your role has to be spun up pretty quickly. You know, you don't have a lot of time to figure things out. You know, how did you adapt? What did you have to do? What were the biggest takeaways that you had that you were then able to use later? Yeah, some of the, some of the biggest adaptations I had to make was being on the other side of big military and not being able to work with them and not get killed by them because <laughs> they were they were pretty trigger happy and uh, to a point. Well, I mean, you can't blame them. They were you know they were new at it as well. They didn't particularly want to be there, I suppose. And we. We were in a uniform and we weren't driving military vehicles, so we looked just like the people that they were trying to uh, protect themselves from. We had to learn pretty quickly to adapt and work with them and not get shut up. Also, you know, friend from foe um, amongst the Iraqi population, and, and that, was, that was pretty quickly established. If you had a gun and you looked as if you're going to lift it in that direction, you were, you were not a friendly. Um, also, you know, other security companies. It was another, you, know, you had to sort of watch out who was, so you didn't get a, like a blue and blue situation. But also you had to deal with the, well, I did anyway, the the, the, sort of the daily torture that you saw. That yeah, I know, let's talk about that civilization, a population you, you The daily struggle that they were going through. They had endured since perhaps the Clinton administration of sanctions and all that stuff. Kind of but just how resilient they were and how they just felt almost life. And they were a lot nice. of people like, have talked about the, daily, the contractors um, in the country. And trauma of course there's the they were going there, but still just getting on with their lives. Blackwater commercial. Not really... Wanting anything to do with what was going on, and they didn't have the time or the space kind of to deal, but they just wanted to get through another day. And the that you, ran you know, into you dealt with that as well. Um, the roses, and that, yeah, that played on you a little bit too. If you uh, saw some of that for audience, was, yeah, kind of really admired them for what they were going through and how they went through it, you know.
Yeah, Rose was our housekeeper, mother, sort of like hook. She was there for every for her, and we were all her boys. We were all her boys. But she had one particular boy who was a favorite, um, and he unfortunately uh, got killed. Each day they risked their lives coming to work and leaving work, which is that we had. They risked their lives coming to work, you know, and just even coming into the ISD once we were inside was was dangerous for them. Um, but the most sort of the one haunting, wow, well, the yeah, the one haunting situation I found, uh, and I mentioned in the book was um, was that one child, you know, um, his whole family had been you know, obliterated when uh, the apartment block got flattened by a bomb, and he was, I call him Gollum from Lord of the Rings because he was completely black, skinny, dirty, you know, and always scrambling back in and out of this rubble. And I, I always wondered why was he going inside this, you know, pancaked car park until an Iraqi uh, guard told me, oh, no, it wasn't the car park, it was the apartment building where his family still are because they're dead inside it. And he going back in there. And I saw him one night eating what I thought was a loaf of bread. And um, it turned out I tied up pigeon that he was peeling the feathers off and, and munching on it. I just felt terrible. And he wasn't the only one. And you could tell he was gone. He was gone. His PTSD was he was never going to live a normal life again. And then I'd think about my kids at home and my boys were the same age as him, you know, more or less. And that that kid's played on my mind ever since. And um, you know, and, and that affected me also when I went home. I mean, I'd we'd go to a restaurant and I, I say this in the book, you know, and my boys were being boys, they couldn't decide what they wanted. I'd snap and I snapped one time big time at them at a restaurant. You know, you don't know the how lucky you've got it, you know, there are kids back for uh, eating dead pigeons and that. I just and I brought it home, the trauma of that. And that's when stuff was starting to really start to play in my mind. So every everyone who was working with us, I mean, I really respect them and I I really think that they just stuck in a rock and a hard place that they didn't need to be in because once everybody pulled out, you know, they were first on the chopping block if they were to get if they were to get caught by others who knew that they were working for the uh, for the coalition. You brought it up, uh, your kids, the realities of war that you saw, the differences in the world that most Americans, New Zealanders, first world nation countries uh, live. Um, and uh, I was actually listening to uh, Tom Satterley. He was on uh, a different podcast lately, and, and that he was a tier one operator and uh, spent a, a career. And you know, most of what they talked about was the the uh, the trauma that was induced throughout years of service. And uh, it's one thing when you're in the military overseas and you see a, a combat world. Um, but as a contractor working high threat protection, you're in the same mix. You're seeing the same world. You're you're in it just as much as as the big military, the big army, as you describe it. Um, you know, there's a lot of organizations for mental health these days, uh, for military. Um, but as a private contractor, what was that like for you guys stepping out of that world, finishing that contract? Um, and going back home, like you said, with your kids, how did you deal with that transition? Because I imagine it would have been pretty, uh, pretty heavy. Yeah, no, it is, and it was, and, and and just to sort of from, from what you said, you know, you never really step out of that world. There's always a part of you there, and um, 
Yeah, it's it changes everybody. I mean, yeah, we were contractors and yeah, we got paid a lot of money to do what we do. So, you know, that's our good luck. You can deal with it certain ways. I, I try to deal with mine with uh, alcohol um, and that didn't work. I mean, I, I just started drinking and I was drinking more and I was drinking more. And I drank to a point where I was becoming doubt. And, and then I was leading my guys and I was making decisions that were dangerous to them. And I realized this. And uh, so I knew I had to get out. You know, I, I was smart enough to see that my drinking was becoming a problem. Um, my, my sleeps were terrible. Um, I was exhausted and tired all the time and uh, I wasn't getting the same enjoyment out of it. When I drank, again, that wasn't giving me the sort of freedom to escape it. It was just making making things. You do have to find a way that you can deal with it. And they're, they're, like you say, there are, there are many organizations that can help. We all deal with, with stress and trauma differently. Um, no one needs it, but those of us who did and, and do uh, should should definitely take it. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not the because you're weak. It's not because of anything. You know, it's it's we all built differently. And I encourage anybody who's going through any type of trauma, PTSD, or whatever, to because it doesn't doesn't just affect us. It affects those who we're loved by, our families, um, our friends, and all that. So we're making their life difficult. Uh, making their life a trauma because we are. We have dealt up with what we needed to deal with. I'm very lucky. I have given up drinking. I gave up drinking 13 years ago. I haven't touched a bottle. Oh, sorry, a bottle drop since. And I'm very, I'm very lucky. I made up my mind one day. Um, my mind was made up for me. My wife <laughs> took a bit of convincing. It took me about five months being kicked out of out of the house and working a job in Africa before I realised that she was serious. And then I said, you know what? I don't need this anymore. And I yeah, um, you know, it's a my glass down. It's an important topic to talk about. I think we talk about it more now. And I'm very lucky um, that I have the mental ability to do that, and I do that. Not everybody does. Five, ten years. And you if know. you don't, um, you plenty of good organizations. I'm like stepping you say, back to the preface of your book, and I think it'll and it's not a sign of weakness. It's a kind of line itself up with where we're kind of headed right now. It's a brotherhood out there. I still I'm still in contact with. You know, from the keyboard several times while writing and typing this out. Um, How much of that was related to what we just talked about? Um, suffering from any sort of PTSD or mental hardship to get the help that is out there. I want to get to why did you why did you write the book? What was the motivation there? What was the determination to get back to the keyboard and finish it? Yeah, um, well, my good friend, Mark Bolt, um, who wrote uh, The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and all that sort of count, um, he encouraged me to write it, and I never thought I had anything to write anyway. And he could see that 
you know, there was something going up and on, on in my head. And he said, it might help you. It could be quite cathartic. You know, it could be quite therapeutic. And so I started. And, you know, in Blackwater Commercial, we had some pretty traumatic uh, times with some of the guys getting killed over there. And I was right there amongst it. And nobody else had ever written anything about what we were going through when those events were happening and how they happened and the situation that led to them. So I thought, you know, okay, I'll write about that. And that's about every, any, anything I, you know, everything I know. So once I started, I started with, um, you know, the boys getting killed in Fallujah and all that and how we were dealing with it on the ground and how it happened um, from our side of the stories. I started the story because there was a ton of armchair warriors who knew everything and had never set foot in the country. Once I started writing everything, he just said, just dump it all down. That's all you got to do, dump it all down. And I've never written anything before in my life, apart from maybe a training program, and my two index fingers got beaten to hell, sort of tapping it out on my uh, my laptop. Um, I ended up with 250,000 words. And the story kind of fell together where I went back to how it started. And I, I revisited a lot of trauma. And I had to step away, um, not just from Iraq, but also things that... Um, you know, with my family and stuff, like with my father. Um, and I was really sort of surprised that I was acting the way that I was acting emotionally with some of the stuff that I was writing. And also, I was working a full-time contract. Uh, I, did, I was I was doing one-man uh, close protection for a businessman. We were flying all around the world extensively, um, you know, 11 years, 10 years. Um, so I was writing in hotels whenever I could, you know, a bit here and a bit there. And once I had finished with this huge, massive amount of words that, you know, were, the only thing it was missing was punctuation and, and correct spelling. Um, I thought, yeah, you're done. I'm good. But then I, I was introduced to Damien Lewis, who's a fantastic uh, military writer himself uh, from the UK. And he's written uh, quite a lot of uh, published books about the SAS and World War II type stories and all that. He said he'd ghostwrite it and go through it and, and do a draft. And that process itself took, yeah, let's say, maybe about four or five years. And so I had to keep reading it in order to see if I was happy with the proof. And I kept adding here and I kept adding there. So I kept rereading everything. And I was getting, from what I read it, it wasn't my emotions weren't changing about it. I'd still reach a point that would make me, you know, get misty up. Um, and I'd have to step away again. And I sort of thought to myself, you know what, if I hadn't written this, you know, if I'd written it once and then just put it away, I probably could have dealt with, uh, you know, some of the trauma that I was mentally going through. But by rereading it and rereading and rereading it, I'm really just kicking the sand. You know, and then and bringing it up all the time, and and then as I was reading, I was, you know, what this is, this is my, this is a legacy project, um, not only for my children and my my grandchildren, so they've got an idea of what their grandfather and their father did, and all that sort of crap, but also for those of us within Blackwater, um, who got very badly, uh, sort of like slandered, uh, our, our reputation or in the media and everything else, we were the scapegoats of everybody bad. And, uh, anything that went wrong was Blackwater. Eric Prince was nothing but a mercenary and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, a, it was which was completely wrong. Um, so it was also to get our side of the story out. Um, we were no different from any other security company there. You know, we, we had, we've you know, we had all the assets. We had some good contracts and we Blackwater made a lot of money, which which was actually double-edged because anytime anything bad did happen, straight away it was Blackwater. Uh, other, other security companies would get, you know, into trouble. Oh, we're Blackwater. They'd blame us. And I, I outlined that in the book as well, an incident where it worked. Um, and I just wanted to set the record straight that, you know, Blackwater was not not a bunch of 
killers running around just shooting the, you know, the crap out of the place. Uh, the, the incident in Nassau Square, I wanted to impart the knowledge I knew about it. And um, also, after listening to uh, Sean Ryan's fantastic uh, podcast, when he interviews the four guys and you get the story from them. Um, and if you've worked with an American company and you know the Department of you know, Justice and Department of State, you know that if they want to get you, they'll get you. And they don't care who it is and how they do it. You know, and these four guys, and, and from what I believe, were scapegoats. You know, and everyone was going, well, they're Blackwater, they're guilty. You know, and um, the, the insurgency at the time, they were, they were given an opportunity to benefit from um, the bad publicity that we were, that everybody was getting, contractors in particular, Blackwater, and even more in particular, and, and they benefited from that. So there was never any questioning their version of events, you know. And, of course, the media, who were all fantastically, yes, we should go and invade, rah, 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 when it turned to custard, oh, no, no, we should never have gone. You know, we're looking for someone also to blame and make it look as if, you know, hands in the air wasn't me. And, again, that was Blackwater. So that was also one of my other motivations to write it. Um, you know, and I got rejected three or four times, which really makes you a writer because you, you're not a writer. Yeah, you're yeah definitely. Um, uh, and then I was like you said, a lot of people go have weighed in and, what um, Blackwater is. And I got and, two offers uh, to publish As you detail in your book, I went for a um, publishing company from the UK. It's not exactly again, an accurate description from your perspective. Um, they love the story. And so, um, without told. having read your own book, this will be an even and, better and answer. It, um, and in kind of the, the Cliff Note short version, what was Blackwater to you? I've got the books here, and I still haven't read it in book form. I look at the copies that I have, and one day I will. But. And I think, you know, once I do, I might finally close that chapter, but we'll just see. Blackwater to me was what the SAS is to me. You know, it's it's uh, something I'm very proud of that I was a part of. Um, it's something that you know uh, uh, I can say that I was what in. What you just described like to say that reminds me a lot of the Teddy Roosevelt quote. You know, uh, and then I just the leave man that, in the arena. You, know, you, you can know, think whatever you want, but like I know talk I was about, there. You know, uh, what you guys some, did as if they were there. Who, um, you know, I would never, never have otherwise met. I think met. that happens a lot. You know, Blackwater to me was um, my opportunity I, I to sort of test myself. Book. I've, I've read most of it. In a military I'm still environment. finishing up and the back end. Was, um, okay. It's dense. If you were going to be with a but company in Iraq, it's an incredible you know, there were only a few that would were sort of notable. The work you, know, you guys did. Canopy and with uh, the British Control Risk Group. What you guys um, went through as a team, as individuals, the impact it had. Obviously, the impact it's still having. Um, and I think we're kind of just getting around to that, both, uh, you know, um, even detailed for guys that served in what you described, the big army, you know, a lot of, of, uh, the after effects, you know, 20, 30 years later of, uh, a lot of the actions in the nineties, early two thousands and straight on through, uh, to the culmination of, uh, you know, of Afghanistan just recently, you know. And, uh, and again, um, to your point, you never really 
leave this world. You're still out contracting today. You're still putting in work. Um, what are you up to these days? Mm-hmm. These days, I'm doing a lot less. Um, you know, I, I I don't live in New Zealand. I don't live around people. Um, I live high up on a hill with my wife and my noisy dogs. I don't interact with people if I have to. Um, I find I don't like traveling anymore. I used to travel all the time with, with part of my job. The airports and groups of stupid people stress me out. Um, I try and just sort of keep to myself. My my wife took me back, you know, once I stopped uh, drinking and, and then proved that I could you know, be somewhat more reliable and normal. And we live a very happy life in, in somewhat isolation. I have a very small group of friends and friends are for the insecure anyway. But that's the way I, uh, we, we like it. I do occasional jobs. I would do maybe one or two security jobs a year. Uh, I like to do more TV and film work now if I can. It's, it's more um, enjoyable. Um, thinking about writing a second book, uh, I would like to sort of, I'm just wrapping my head around it. I have about four or five different ideas all over the place. But now I'm sort of trying to focus on something that's somewhat related to what I've written but uh, from a little bit of a different perspective, and I'm just sort of figuring out how I'm going to do that. Um, and I have to say one thing. I don't have social media presence apart from LinkedIn, but I'm very grateful to all the people who have uh, reached out to me, like yourself, uh, since I wrote the book, but I did kind of enjoy it when no one knew who I was before the book, <laughs> you know, sort of a little bit more, you know. I can understand that. Um, I remember what it was like before I had the podcast, and before you show up to conferences or jobs or random encounters and people go, hey, listen to this podcast. And I, I get that to probably a much lesser extent than you, um, you know, having a book that's been widely read by, you know, guys in this industry. Um, um, and, and you are certainly not the first person that has worked in protective security, um, that bubble, law enforcement, military that uh, has chosen to the extent that you can, the quiet life afterwards, you know, and, uh, and that's something that I'd certainly understand. Now I got one last question for you before we wrap. Um, inevitably there's going to be more high threat contracting. It's ongoing already. It never, the cycle never ends. Uh, the need is always going to be there. Um, what advice do you have for the next generation of protectors that are either have found themselves there already, or in the next coming years, uh, with the world as we know it, will find themselves in a similar role to you and your teammates. What advice do you have for those guys? You know, talk to guys like us who've been there. Ask us questions about what it's like and what to expect. Not only once you're there, but when you come back, what what's going what changes are going to happen, and prepare them, prepare your families for them, because you're not going to come back the same person. 
if you have a five-year plan like we all intended and meant to have, try and stick to it as much as possible. You're going to be making good money, so put it away because your five-year five year plan tends to slip. It comes a six-year plan, seven-year plan. You're providing for your loved ones, okay? Um, and you may not be around in that five-year plan, so you, want, you don't want to leave them high and dry. You know, sort of, uh, you know, have, have everything prepared, have your mind prepared, know what you're getting into. Also, know what's going to happen to you when, you, when you're out of it, if you're going to stay within the industry. Um, you know, trust yourself, trust your instincts. Always trust the hairs on the back of the neck and their and the feeling in the pit of your stomach because it, it doesn't lie. Surround yourself with competent people. And if you're not around competent people or people you trust, get out of there, okay? and find people that you can trust. Um, yeah, I think that's about all I could really offer, you know? I think that's a lot, you know? Um, look at the generations who have been there. Talk to the guys who've done this work. It's important. Get mentors. Get good mentors. Um, one more thing. One more thing. Give me some more. I know you got something that just hit your head. Don't video your crap. Keep it off social media. That's great. And we see that a lot these days. Compromising clients, compromising companies, compromising themselves. Um, flesh that out a little bit for those who are listening. I think that is a great little nugget right there. Yeah, this generation can't help but pick a camera up and take a photo of their lunch. You know, and, and I've done it myself. But, you know, you go to a restaurant, you see nobody's talking to each other. They're all on their phones. And I find that to be almost as disrespectful as wearing a hat at a table. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a complete new generation. And unfortunately, it's it's going to get them in trouble because, I mean, look at all the instances where things have been exposed. It's because people, I mean, I saw an incident today, just as I watched what's going on in Israel and, and this Palestinians were driving through in a Humvee. Every single person following that Humvee were filming with their phones out. That's the generation. We can't do that in our industry. We can't. Our, our, our brothers were filmed getting killed in Fallujah, you know, and that made the news. Yeah, there, there are things that other people perhaps want to see, and there are certain things that other people certainly do not need to see, and uh, that's forever going to be on the internet, and it will never go away, and that will haunt you for the rest of your life. So just don't even do it. I think that's great advice. Or it will chase you for the rest of your life. Yeah, no, that's great advice, and uh, I would love to have you back in the future again down the road to talk more. Um, obviously there's way more to talk about with you. Um, you've got a lot of, you know, hard earned experience. You've got a lot to pass down and, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to share that with our audience today. Um, incredible stuff. And thank you. Thank you, Ron. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I hope somebody Somebody learns have something from it and, and, and reads the book and whatever, but I want to thank you very much. That uh, your podcast and podcasts like them are needed, particularly in our industry. People need to reach out uh, before going in blind and into what we do. And uh, you know, hopefully what you're doing uh, reaches people and, and they learn that. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you in kind. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for continuing to support conversations like this on the GSPG podcast. Until next time, stay safe.